Good afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Marmosets and NASA. In addition, we're joined by Matthew Chapman, who will discuss evolution on trial. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty spaced out. <laughs> you visited the space lately? No, but NASA is. I keep getting surprised that they go there, considering that they are the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Right, which is supposed to protect and serve the human environment, right? Uh, or maybe that, not anymore. Is that right? I never. The mission statement was changed by the administration. <laughs> they have other things they need to protect. Yes. Like but, our uh, oil. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, space is the final frontier, right? Mm hmm. They've actually started laying groundwork for the Human Lunar Outpost in a bid to perhaps go beyond what the ISS, the International Space Station, is right now. So ISS is considered a low-altitude orbiting uh, vehicle. The idea is to move back beyond that to the moon and eventually even to Mars. Right. Well, I mean, the ISS was supposed to be the launching pad for those missions, right? Right. Well, instead, it's just become a laboratory where actually they don't even do any experiments. (laughs) Sounds like my lab. (laughs) The world goes at a small pace, I guess. Yeah, well. (laughs) Mine's not going anywhere. Of course, this is quite controversial. People think NASA should be completely done away with and start from scratch. Mm. But the government has motives, like some maybe not so obvious. But the idea right now with this directive is that they will return to the moon by 2020 as a stepping stone for other missions. Cool. Hopefully they won't be fighting over vast territories of the moon among the various nations. Uh, Who knows? China wants to go there uh, very soon, in fact. The great tourist destination. Everyone should go to the moon once. Yeah, hang out there. So, of course, no one's discussed the cost or what even the objectives really are, but... Well, it's a government project. (laughs) There are ambitions, and some people are really pushing for it. Let's get to Mars by 2021. I'll write you there. (laughs) All right. Pretty interesting review on chemical and engineering news. All right, well, switching gears to something a little more earthbound. Do you know if your father can also be your uncle? Uh, I don't think so. Well, that must mean he's not a marmoset. Who's that? (laughs) So these are uh, small primate creatures, which uh, are about the size of a squirrel or such, and reside primarily in South America. And these monkeys are apparently able to swap stem cells with their fraternal twins. Swap stem cells? Yes. Is that after they're born? So during the uh, conception process, Uh two egg cells are fertilized by a different sperm. Right. And as these cells are developing, uh-huh. the stem cells from those developing embryos okay. actually swap in the womb. Wow. Scientists have known for quite some time that these marmosets can swap these stem cells, but they've only seen evidence of mixing in blood cells. And more recent work by Karina Ross, a primatologist at the University of Texas in San Antonio, she has shown that, that actually the sperm now show evidence of this genetic mixing. 
one monkey might actually have the DNA of both fertilized eggs. It's almost like how slime molds or other bacteria exchange DNA with each other. Right. So, but this leads to a very interesting situation where the monkey could actually be giving birth to a nephew right. and not its own son. So these composites, marmosets, when they're born, do they actually have both types of swim cells being expressed within the same body or... So far, they've only shown it in the blood cells and the sperm cells, but it's perhaps very likely that they'll find it in a lot of other tissues in the body. I mean, this is very similar to, for example, calico cats. They'll express different sets of gene in different parts of their skin and giving them the different pigmentation, right? They say it could actually explain why marmoset males have a selective parenting behavior Hmm. because they will actually take care of the chimeric offspring more than the non-chimeric offspring. And the rationale, they say, is that because the chimeric offspring actually has more, more diversity of DNA than the non-chimeric one. The next step in evolution, huh? Evolution keeps evolving, and they're the superheroes of the marmoset world. What they will do with those powers? Mm. Wait and see. Appropriately enough, was published in our very favorite journal. Oh, the Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. Penis. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Matthew Chapman will join us to discuss evolution on trial. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, the debate over teaching evolution in public schools continues unabated. One of the most recent battles took place in Pennsylvania. The case Kitzmiller v. Dover Board of Education ruled that intelligent design could not be presented alongside evolution as scientific theory. The story of the trial, the characters involved, and the scientific and legal debate is presented in the new book, 40 Days and 40 Nights, Darwin, Intelligent Design, God, Oxycontin A, and other oddities on trial in Pennsylvania. The author, Matthew Chapman, is a critically acclaimed book and screenwriter who covered the trial for Harper's Magazine. He is also the great-great-grandson of Charles Darwin. Mr. Chapman, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Sign Show. So you've really set me up as an unbiased commentator here. (laughs) Well, I'd be quite surprised if you came down in favor of intelligent design. (laughs) Uh, I did actually come down in favor of teaching a science class involving intelligent design. Yes, yes, it's uh, quite a fascinating uh, way you close the book. Maybe we'll get to that, in fact, uh, the reason why you decided that. (laughs) Uh, But I'm I'm actually curious, are you amazed that this uh, kind of debate still is going on in America? I truly am, yeah. And I think, you know, if there was a debate going on now about whether a car requires four wheels, you'd find that most mechanics in the United States would be amazed by it. And, of course, most scientists are truly amazed by this. I mean, people who actually know what they're talking about in the sciences are really kind of astonished by it. I mean, I I think astonished in the wrong way because they just sort of throw up their hands usually and walk away from it. But it's really, it's an inconceivably strange thing. Why do you think debate has persisted for so long in this country? A lot of theories about this. And I, I have, I mean, one theory is quite well known, which is that in Europe, I mean, with the Catholic Church in Italy and, and the various sort of Catholic countries in the Mediterranean, the Catholic 
priesthood is if they're very educated people, so they frame the debate a little differently, or have done until recently. And in England, for example, it was the kind of feeble-minded son of the aristocracy who went into the church, but he got a good education on his way in. In America, you have a lot of the clergy kind of rise up from the common folk. I mean, I remember when I was down in Tennessee doing my first book, I went to a tent revival, and I asked the guy who was preaching, I said, where did you train for this? And he said, oh, I trained in knee school. And I said, what is knee school? He said, I just just knelt down and prayed and I was able to do this. In other words, he had had no education whatsoever in religious matters other than what he picked up in other churches where other people had not received an education either. During the sort of the Western progress, the pioneers going across America, there was not an educated priesthood. And so there's less sophisticated interpretations of the Bible in this country. I personally have another theory about it, which is a more general theory, which is that there's a kind of ironic thing happens with the increase in knowledge. I mean, the more we know, actually the less each of us individually knows of the whole. So that if you looked at a man in 1900, an educated man in 1900 could basically understand more or less everything that was known about the universe. Now nobody can have that understanding because knowledge has grown so exponentially and has fractured into so many different disciplines. So people, rather than feeling enlightened by knowledge, feel alienated by it and retreat into simpler interpretations of nature and life. But this certainly has not been the case in Europe. It, It is more widely accepted, but it's coming under attack there too in part because of sort of Muslim Islamic immigration into Europe, in part, I think, for the same reasons. I mean, there was a poll done by the BBC recently in England where I can't remember the exact figures, but, I mean, people were asked, of these three theories, which would you like taught in school? And it was evolution, straight creationism, and intelligent design. And 40% thought that creationism should be taught alongside evolution, 50% thought that intelligent design should be taught alongside evolution. And it ended up, basically, that 30% of the people didn't think evolution should be taught at all in school. And that's in England, where the whole thing was kind of put together. Hmm. Well, Pennsylvania was the battleground for one of the more recent flare-ups in this battle. I wonder if you can set up the topic of your book here, and maybe how you actually became aware of this trial and went to cover it. Well, as I think I mentioned, I'd written another book before called Trials of the Monkey, an Accidental Memoir, which was about a trip I took to the town in Tennessee where the Scopes Monkey Trial took place in 1925, upon which Inherit the Wind, the movie was based, the play and then the movie, which incidentally I saw the play last night in New York. Excellent. So I was kind of reticent about doing another book about a trial between evolution and a new version of creationism. But in the Scopes trial, all of the scientific testimony was thrown out. And so although it was a lot of fun, and there was a certain sort of vaudevillian quality to it, but there wasn't any serious science, when I read that in Pennsylvania, all the scientists would be there on both sides, you know, the the intelligent design, quote-unquote, scientists, and the scientists defending evolution, I thought, wow, this is kind of amazing. If I go down there, I will really get an education. And indeed I did. I mean, it was incredible. You had paleontologists and biologists and microbiologists, and then you had theologians, and then you had the guys on the intelligent design side attacking evolution. And all of this had to be made comprehensible to a judge who knew nothing about science. 
And in the process of that, it became comprehensible to me, who was covering the trial by this time for Harper's Magazine. And it was just the most incredible thing. I mean, all of these big issues, and I think the biggest issues in modern life, which is religion and science, were being discussed in this courtroom in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It was like being at the greatest philosophical scientific debate in the world. And I think it was. It was like, I wish it had been filmed. It would have been, you know, it would be in the class for 9th, 10th, 11th graders, because it really was comprehensible. So a case was brought up by 11 parents who disagreed with the decision to present creationism as a alternate, or intelligent design as an alternative theory. I'm curious if you can maybe talk about some of the parents that were involved and maybe some of the other characters, since you, you do paint a very interesting picture of all these people. Surprisingly, it was a very uplifting experience because what happened was there were really two aggressive and energetic evangelical stroke fundamentalist parents. Well, actually, one of them was a parent and one of them wasn't a parent of a school and uh, of a child in school. Got onto the school board and at first tried to get creationism put in the classroom to be taught alongside evolution. Then when they realized that was illegal, they turned it into intelligent design and tried to have that taught alongside evolution. And 11 parents, ordinary people, so to speak, wouldn't take it and objected to it and tried to get it removed and tried to fight it. The teachers had a terrible time. You know, they were trying to say, no, we cannot have this thing taught in science class. A, it's illegal. B, it's nonsense. Eventually, the 11 parents decided to sue in federal court, got together and did. And it was just very inspiring because, you know, there was a couple of housewives, a couple of teachers. Kitz Miller herself worked in a landscaping company. And they just wouldn't take this. And, and they were very eloquent about why they wouldn't take it. And, I mean, in a simple legal sense, it's the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, which prohibits the teaching of religious theories in science classes. It was like they were saying, we will not have our constitutional rights stepped on in this way. And I really, I really got to like them so much and, and admire them. I, I just thought they were incredible people. So the lawyers that eventually took the case for these parents, sponsored somewhat by the ACLU and led by uh, Eric Rothschild, what were your opinions of him? <laughs> Eric was great. You know, he's a corporate lawyer from a fancy corporate law firm in Philadelphia. But he had an interest in science, and he worked the case pro bono. And he was a very witty guy, very funny, very sardonic, very well prepared, sort of quietly dramatic in court. Just a great guy. And then you had his partner at Pepper Hamilton, who was Steve Harvey, who was a slightly harder character. He was Irish and had this sort of glinting blue eyes and totally terrifying. And then you had the ACLU lawyer who had nothing to do with corporate law at all and had been sort of, he'd been involved in cases to do with sort of flag burning and health rights for gay people. The year before, he defended a woman who'd put up a sign picture of a Bambi being shot in the head as an anti-hunting statement and had been asked to take it. I mean, all those sort of weird things that ACLU lawyers get involved in. And they were just a great team, uh, really funny. Who, who do you think were some of their strongest witnesses? Oddly enough, the witness who I liked most was a theologian called John Hort, and who I didn't necessarily agree with all the time. But he just made a very eloquent case for the fact that you don't have to interpret the Bible literally to get value out of it. I mean, in a way, what he was saying was that to interpret the Bible literally is to belittle its poetry and its real sort of metaphorical meaning. And he was just incredibly eloquent. 
there was this guy Pennock there who had invented a virtual digital environment into which he would drop what are essentially computer viruses and watch the process of evolution occurring in a digital world. I mean, just all kinds of fascinating things like that. There was Miller from Brown, who's a Catholic uh, biologist. Just incredible, incredible people. Clearly with the weight of scientific evidence on the side of the prosecution, how was the defense trying to counteract this? Well, the defense counteracted with their three arguments against evolution, which are a thing called the bacterial flagellum, which is a, a truly astonishing-looking bacterium that they argue is so complicated that it couldn't have evolved. It must have been abruptly created by an intelligent designer. The immune system, which they argue couldn't have evolved uh, for the same reason. These various arguments that certain things in nature are so complicated they couldn't have evolved in a gradual way but must have been abruptly created by God. For example, in the argument against the immune system, Michael Behe, who is the main spokesperson for intelligent design, said that no one had ever described the means by which the immune system could have evolved. And Eric Rothschild approached him with a book, and he said, but doesn't this book describe how the immune system evolved? And he said, well, no, not really. And Rothschild went back to his table, picked up another book, and another book, and another book, and another book, until eventually Behe, you could barely see his <laughs> eyes over this mass of books and papers that had been written on the subject that he said no one had ever really addressed. It's just bogus. It's bogus, and it's deceptive. Did it ever become very clear that all these arguments were not holding any water? I think it really did. And I mean, there was spoke to a lot of people in the community. I don't think anyone who was a fundamentalist Christian was moved an inch by this, because this is what I find terrifying about this whole thing in a grander sense. I don't think evidence is something they're interested in. I mean, it was very revealing that the two people who disputed the veracity of evolution had had nine months to prepare themselves for the trial. One of them had been given a deposition nine months before the trial, and when asked to describe intelligent design, actually described evolution. Nine months later, when he came into court, he knew no more about either of the two theories, if you call intelligent design a theory, than he did nine months ago. He hadn't had the curiosity to discover what it was that he had advocated so strongly that this very impoverished school district would end up having to pay, I mean, actually, they could have had to pay $3 million, and just hadn't bothered to look into it. And the other guy, uh, Alan Bonzel, he was the same way. He knew nothing. He hadn't, you know, and it's not even a very complicated theory to understand the theory of evolution. And they just hadn't bothered to investigate it because they were so set on the other theory. And I would say the other theory in their case was really a, a creationist theory. And I think that's why they didn't bother to look into intelligent design, because intelligent design was just a thing they hid behind in order to subvert the law. Because really they're just sort of convicted about the creationism. It's really, it's disappointing to watch. Is it strange that folks like Bonzo and Bill Buckingham, for example, were in such a position to institute a school policy or school curriculum in that way? Well, it was extraordinary. I mean, I remember I spoke to all of the teachers, and the teachers were just great and really enthusiastic. I mean, you, you have no idea how wonderful education can be when you get to these little pockets of it. Great teachers. There's a woman called Bert Spar, who'd been te Bertha Spar, but known as Bert Spar, who'd been teaching at the school for 40 years, head of the science department. Just an incredible woman, full of enthusiasm for science. 
And she had asked, have any of you got any science education at all? And none of them had. And yet here they were trying to force something on science teachers who devoted their lives to studying science and then devoted more of their life to trying to pass it on to the kids. And there was, you know, a lot of people in the community were saying, this isn't about religion. This is about how are these kids going to compete in the modern world if they don't understand the central theory of biology. Where I take it from this trial and where you go further and where it gets more frightening is when you see that three of the Republican candidates for president dispute evolution. Well, I mean, global warming, avian flu, AIDS, all of these involve biology, and biology is essentially ruled by the theory of evolution. It is a central theory in biology. So to have three men who might, one of them might become the president of the most powerful country in the world, at a time when human beings now have, as E.O. Wilson said, the power of a geophysical force, you know, we can destroy our Earth, for these people not to understand biology and therefore not understand nature, that they might get to such a powerful position as George Bush, who also doesn't understand it. I mean, it's very frightening, and I think it's frightening to the rest of the world. So in your book, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, you, you argued that maybe the solution is, in fact, to teach intelligent design. Why is that? Well, it was sort of, a, in a way, it's a kind of a joke, but it's kind of not a joke. <laughs> My theory is, is that you shouldn't exactly teach intelligent design, but that if you look at a court case, it is very like a scientific experiment. You know, you have a theory proposed, and you have an oppositional theory proposed against it, and then you have two hypotheses. You have the sort of the prosecution hypothesis and the defense hypothesis, and they fight with each other, and you end up with a theory. I mean, the theory in, in a judicial sense being the judge's opinion. But it's very like the scientific method. And if you watch the way in which this court case evolved and reached a truth, I think, in a sort of somewhat, in a sort of scientific judicial way, it was a wonderful example of the scientific method working really well. And what I really propose is that you teach a class in Kitts Miller v. Dover hmm. as a sort of a scientific experiment. And so instead of dissecting a frog, you dissect intelligent design as a way of teaching the scientific method. It's a, it's a proposal that hasn't gone down well with a lot of people on my side of the argument. <laughs> uh, well, I guess we are running slightly out of time, but um, so you are the great-great-grandson of Charles Darwin. Do you have any uh, particular uh, perspective from, from that lineage? Well, you know, I mean, obviously I sort of looked into his life somewhat, and I think one of the most interesting things about him was that he used to keep a notebook of everything that opposed his theory, because he said it's very easy to just gather facts that support your theory, and it's very easy to reject anything that goes against it. And I think that kind of scrupulous honesty in an investigation into what is true and what is not is something that's kind of lacking in partisan, soundbite world we live in. And so I, I admire him for that. Mr. Chapman, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today to talk about your new book, 40 Days and 40 Nights, and, of course, uh, the debate on evolution. Thank you for having me. And you were just listening to Mr. Matthew Chapman discussing Evolution on Trial. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 plus the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
Alright, we're back in a Red Player game, the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Highly Evolved or Primordial Soup. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know are they highly evolved or are they more like Primordial Soup? Mr. Chapman, you ready to play a game? I am. Alright, here we go. Person number one, Highly Evolved Primordial Soup Donald Trump. Gotta go soup on him. Because I think he's just a thoughtless gorilla that thumps around and um, doesn't really think a great deal. I must say, I find him very uh, uh, amusing. He, he certainly, in terms of entertainment value, he is an evolved creature. Um, but I don't think that philosophically uh, it goes very deep. <laughs> okay, number two is golfer Tiger Woods. Well, I mean, I find it hard to respect anyone who hits a ball that stays still. <laughs> I, some, I think there's something, it, it, there's something bullying about that. <laughs> if a ball is coming towards you and you have to hit it because it's, it's approaching, that's one thing. But to get this thing, this tiny little thing that's just sitting there waiting to be hit, I think there's something a little abusive about that. Sort of an unprovoked attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor thing, just sitting there on it. All right, uh, number three, uh, Charles Darwin. Highly evolved. <laughs> <laughs> One has to point out that he wasn't necessarily, um, he was a hypochondriac, and he was rather timid. I mean, he, he didn't sort of go out there and, and fight. So maybe there's sort of a 3% part of him that could have been a little more um, aggressive and outgoing, but maybe that was a crafty strategy. Okay. All right, uh, number four, uh, Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. I would describe him as being the ultimate prankster of the 20th century. <laughs> I mean, putting aside Joseph Smith, who invented Mormonism, you know, this whole business of, like, the plates that he found, and then the plates disappeared, and, I mean, what a fantastic scam. <laughs> L. Ron Hubbard goes one better than that, because he actually wrote, I think, in the early 40s, if a man wants to get rich, he should invent a religion. He then invented one and made a fortune. <laughs> so that's a sort of a dark evolution, I have to say, a darkly exploitive evolution of character. <laughs> All right, uh, number five, uh, finally, the president of the United States, George Bush. Well, I mean, to criticize George Bush is to criticize an enormous segment of the American people who voted for him. And I think that this really speaks to the whole problem I have with religion as it stands at the moment, which is that if you're given a choice between evidence, intelligence, and education, and brute force and conviction. An enormous number of people prefer brute force and, and conviction. And I think George Bush is beyond being unevolved. I think he's a disgrace. I think he's a disgrace to this country. Oh, well, All right, well, Mr. Chapman, though, I do want to thank you for sticking around and uh, playing our game and, of course, talking about your book, 40 Days and 40 Nights. Well, thank you for having me again. And now, Forrest, with the answer to last week's question of the week, What's a frontal lobotomy? Well, frontal lobotomy is when they take out a piece of the front of your brain because of some strange behavior, a violence, or just having strange epilepsy. That's what a frontal lobotomy is for. Hello now, Clarice. It's so nice to see you. There are so many things I like. But what I prefer the most is genotypic variation. Well, what is it? If you know or just think you know, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but ooh, you may know why those fava beans are so tasty. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.